Feel free to take your time, still eat from the table, do what you guys gotta do. We're gonna start off the class like we always do with uh, the Refua Shlema, and then we're gonna do the Ilulot. So, first for Refua Shlema, Yaakov ben Berta. Simon ben Jacqueline. Simon ben Jacqueline. My brother is having a surgery tomorrow, so if you can put it in your prayer. I will. Amen. What is this? Simon ben Jacqueline. Simon ben Jacqueline. Batia, Bat, Sarah. Batia, Bat, Sarah. Rachel, Bat, Sarah. Rachel, Bat, Sarah. Yehuda ben Arlet. Yehuda ben Arlet. Yehuda. You should say Eli Benziva. 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 Sarah Bat Chaya Simcha ve Binyamin Ben Chana. One more Shani Chaya Bat Miriam. Shani Chaya Bat Miriam. David Suzy Bat Anis. If people want me, if people want me to, or want to add people that they're doing Refua Shlema for to my uh, Tehilim list or for my own personal prayers, you could send it to me. I don't mind adding them at first. And Bezrat Hashem, may Hashem give them a refuat shlima, refuat nefesh, refuat aguf, so that they should have the strength. Amen. Amen. That they should get close to Hashem, so that they should have the strength to be able to do their mission in this world and be in joy. Amen. Now for the Yilula. Uh, for the people that have passed away, may this class be in their merit and may in the connection of holding Tzadikim be able to help elevate their souls. So please, uh, we'll start off. Colleen had just lost her mother and Colleen comes to the class. Simon? Simon. Simon Bachana? Shana or Chana? Chana. Simon she wrote it the same way you wrote it. Yeah, yeah I just want to make sure because French people yeah. pronounce it. You know, Chaim Ben Dina, El Azar Ben David Verochama, Miriam Bat Yoshua, Rachel Chaya Yafa Bat Victoria Miriam, Machatucha Bat Victoria, Machatucha Bat Victoria Dina, Sylvie Marlène Bat Rachel, Rosette Bat Pacha, Kaori Bat Simcha, Menashe Ben Rachel Ben Esod, Madisse Bat Oun Bat Eugene Nassia, Meir Ben Ginette Nina Chaya Bat Yosef Yedalia, Naftali Daniel Ben Solika, Rezel Bat Perel and for everybody else that passed away and in the merit of the Holy Tzadikim may their Neshamot be elevated Amen Kenya Amen So tonight we're going to talk about two topics which are seemingly unrelated and 
funny enough, we're going to try to connect them in a really deep way. I keep all the I keep the blessings next to all the parnasa. Okay. Ah, <laughs> It's actually no. <laughs> that would be too good. Um, so yeah, we're gonna talk tonight about two different things. Um, and tonight we're gonna talk about the concept of time. Time is always connected um, on a level of physics uh, with space as well, so they're, they're very interconnected. I'm not gonna make the class too scientific, but for the first time, because I don't usually do this in a lot of classes, we're gonna do something that's a little bit scientific and metaphysical, so we're gonna do a little bit of science and things that are beyond the degree of science. When I said science, you immediately put on your mask on now. <laughs> At the moment you said science. <laughs> <laughs> But don't worry, with the new president, you don't need it anymore. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Keep the, keep the political stuff out of the videos for now. This is just a lot. Okay. <laughs> no, because after that, we can go very far. And the second thing that I, I'm going to discuss tonight, other than time, is we're going to talk about the concept of the heart and the significance of the heart and why the Lev is so important in Judaism um, and in so much behind how much how we act, why, why emotions are in, are in are behind so many of the actions that we do and how much the heart controls so much of the actions that we do. So to start off this class in Pasha Truma, I'm going to start off by asking four different questions and then I'm gonna to try to answer them, hopefully if I can remember, to answer them in reverse chronology. And I'm gonna to try to make sure to answer them as I go through it. So I may answer them in a way that's not implied, but I'll try my best to be able to call out the questions again on the way back down. But they're all really well connected, and they all have to do with the parasha. So the first one that I want to ask is the parasha begins by talking to us. This week's parasha talks to us about the measurements and the things that exist within the Mishkan, when Moshe is building out the Mishkan. And for those that are kind of confused between Beit HaMikdash Mishkan, they're used interchangeably, but because we didn't build the Beit HaMikdash until we got into Israel, we built the portable version of the Beit HaMikdash, in the desert, and then a lot of the principles still existed, and there's a lot of sanctity behind the Mishkan, and it's actually a really big blessing that we were able to have the Mishkan with Moshe in the desert before we actually entered into the land of Israel, and so you can use them interchangeably, unless there's something very technical that you're talking about, but just so that people know, I may use the word Beit Mikdash, it's a reference to whenever we're in Israel, but Mishkan is what the Jews built, dismantled, and then rebuilt as they traveled in the desert to then have the place where Hashem was going to dwell. And so the beginning of the Pasha talks immediately about it. And the first question that I bring up, that a lot of rabbis ask, is when you're asked and you're, when you're being told how to build something, normally you do things from a construction level. My dad can attest to a lot of this. Um, is you talk about the structural things, you talk about the foundation, you talk about the things that are built first. When people say when you build a house, you build the foundation, the first level, then you work your way up. But for some reason... The Pasha discusses immediately the section of the Kodesh HaKadashim, which is on the inside, and how to build the Aaron, to build the Ark, the Aaron Abrit, right, the Aaron HaKodesh, which is the main tabernacle piece that essentially had the Kruvim on top of it. There's different arguments to what the Kruvim were. Kruvim is, in English, is cherubs, but some people argue and say that it was, I'll go with the opinion that we most commonly use that, that's discussed in the lesson in Nikute Maran and the Kabbalah most, mostly discusses and Rashi even says that it's this opinion, which is that it's a face of a baby. That's the face of a, of a cherub. A cherub is a type of angel. The Ramban discusses it as being one of the 10 different types of angels. Um, and we're not gonna talk so much about the Ark tonight, but just so that people understand what we're getting into tonight. And it's weak. 
Yeah, and then there's there's wings, and then there there's questions about how do we know that they have wings, and how do we know angels have wings in general? Even goyim have angels. When people start drawing angels, they'll be like, oh, this is a bad angel. He has very dark and big and scary wings, and then this is a nice angel, and he has nice feathery white wings. Like, where do we get all these concepts from? We actually get it from some of the prophecies that are in the different books of the Ketuvim, and um, different sections of of uh, Tanakh, especially within the prophecy that discusses the Merkava, and it says that God was dwelling and there was different types of angels that were surrounding God. And we know this from the Chachamim and also from the writings about how angels look, the different types of angels. When we talk about it in the Tefillah in the morning, we say that there's different types of angels, like for example, Seraphim and Ofne HaKodesh. These are the different types that exist. So there's angels made of fire. Um, there's different Midrashim that talk about different angels that even just their presence, them being able to speak can burn another angel. I shared a, a midrash in last week's parasha, which I didn't post the video, but it was when I was in Mexico, about how there's these angels that are 600,000 times the size of another angel that's already thousands of times larger than Moshe Rabbeinu. Yeah. So the equivalent when I was explaining it to people is that if you can just picture yourself, imagine yourself being an ant and then looking at a human being with full consciousness of being a human being. Wow. So it's it's incomprehensible. Tonight we're going to talk a little bit about things that are incomprehensible. That's why I want to talk about time and space. Um, but the beauty behind it is that the Midash, back to the question now so we can zone back in, <clears throat> immediately starts talking about how to build this thing that's on the inside in the holiest place in the smallest room. And it's incredibly special and there's so much on it. I don't want to go into it because it's a little bit um, disconnected from the class, but I will touch on it a little bit at the end. And the Zohar discusses it a lot, which is very, very special, specifically the Ark. And the Ark was something that was very unique <clears throat> because the Ark is specifically the piece in the, in the Beit HaMikdash and in the Mishkan that Hashem used to speak to Moshe. Um, so there's something very special about this place and why specifically he speaks through this. Just to kind of come full circle on the cherub point, um, there's the opinion that we mainly hold by, which is that it's the face of... Um, of a baby, it has the body of an ox, I believe, and it has the wings essentially of an angel. So it has its different combinations of different pieces, and there's reasons for all of it, but that's a class for another time. So question number one, why do we start by talking about the most detailed piece when usually you discuss finishes and little details and what you want to paint the color of your bedroom at the very end of construction, not at the beginning? Question number one. Question number two, the wording is very, very bizarre in this week's Pasha. I'm not going to be able to go through all of it. If we had a class for two hours, we'd be able to go through a lot more. But I'll show you just by reading a few psukim in the very beginning. We're only going to focus on the first few psukim of the Pasha. You'll see that there's things that are incredible and there's questions that everybody asks from Rashi to the Ramban to different people in the Gemara to obviously the Mekubalim and the Zohar and the Rizal. The Pasha starts off by saying, And Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, speak to truma, right? And take for me a truma, take for me essentially a a giving, a peace, a, a offering of the kindness of Bnei Israel's heart. kol ish asher libo, right? From whatever they would like to give. Um, and so if you look at the first, the second pasuk, essentially, there's already a few questions. One, there's a language twice, vaykhuli, and then at the end, so he's saying, take for me, and then take for me again at the end. So you already have this repetitiveness. Then there's extra words. Why is he saying, Why is Hashem saying, give to me, when in reality, this is an aspect of Jews giving. So why isn't he just saying, Jews give the truma? So why is he using a lashon, a wording that involves 
taking as opposed to a language that should offer giving. Because in the Torah, if there's a situation that is supposed to teach about giving, then it should use the language of giving, not the language of taking. What does Hashem say? It says Vaikhuli, and it says that, oh. and she and I should take from them almost, right? I should take from them for myself, which is just very bizarre wording. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it says Kol Ish, and it says every single Jew. Why is it saying every single Jew shouldn't just say, just tell Bnei Yisrael to give me the Tchuma? It's using extra words. Meet is an extra word, arguably. There's no obvious. There's no extra words in the Torah, but just to show you, and then it says in the next pasuk. Vezot, Truma, the next few psukim discuss all the different things that the Jews can give and contribute and donate to the Beit HaMikdash. So it says, Vezot, Truma, Asher, Itam. And you should take from, uh, these are the things that they could take. Veza, Vechesev, Nechoshet, right? And, and, um, and gold and silver and copper. Utchelet, right? And, and these, uh, and, the, and the purple, different types of, Utchelet, um, Vergaman, the, the blue dyed uh, garments, the purple ones. Toilet Shani and Shesetizim and the, and the things that come from the goat, like the, what's the word from the goats? Um, and it continues to go through the different types of things that a person could contribute to, to be able to build the paroche, to be able to do the gold for the menorah, to do all these different types of things to be able to contribute. And then at the very end, it says in the eighth pasuk, after listing the three things, the things that can come, the special stones that can be put on the Choshen for the Kohen, Vyesuli Mikdash Veshachan Tibetoham, right? And the famous line which is that and you'll make for me a special holy mikdash a, a place that i will rest and i will rest betocham amongst you and the language for that also is very bizarre because why is it i will i will rest amongst you in a plural um and it should say it's a one place it's a makom and i will rest in the in the mikdash so the wording again is a little bit bizarre so Question number two that I have is on the wording for all these psukim and, and why it's it's set up this way. And question number three, there's an argument that's brought up also in the Gemara and the Chachamim that discusses, that says that we know that the third Beit HaMikdash, there's an argument whether or not we have to build it and we have to participate or whether or not it's going to descend from heaven. We hold the primary opinion from most Mekubalim that I've seen and Rabbi um, Nachman discusses it in Mekubi that the tabernacle and essentially the the whole Beit HaMikdash, the third one, is going to descend from heaven. Which means we don't need to do anything for it to descend. So the obvious question is, if there's a reference in the Psukim over here that we need to build a place for Hashem, why is He asking us to build something for Him if the end result is for us to actually not have to do anything and He descends the Beit HaMikdash at the very end of time? So it's a very metaphysical question because actually what was happening when Moshe saw the beginning of time that's good. You're gonna say something very good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. So the um, the obvious question is the obvious question is <laughs> if the Beit Hamikdash, right? And, and it's kind of interesting. If Moshe Rabbeinu knew what was gonna to happen to the other time and all that Sadiqim saw, it must have been incredibly difficult for them to be able to even see the fact that they were building something that was potentially going to be destroyed and that then needed to be eventually rebuilt slash brought down. Hmm. So there's more complicated questions to it, but because I'm not going to focus so much time on that, I just want to leave it at that in simplicity. And the last thing I'm going to add, and the last thing I'm going to, the last question I'm going to ask, which I'm actually going to start with in the first response, is that <clears throat> he asked for us to give a truma, and a truma acts as almost as a tzedakah which is essentially a donation. And so if Hashem is asking us to donate something, there's a question that's asked, which I saw in a class of Nathan Uzon, which I thought was a fantastic question, which is that 
how do you know when you give a donation to something that it's going to the right place? Now we know in the laws of the Beit HaMikdash that the Jews gave donations, they gave whatever they could from their heart, as it says, right? Mikol Libo, which is, or, or essentially, right? From whatever they could give or whatever they desired to give from their heart. We know that the concept over here is going to revolve around the heart. That's why I said we're going to talk about the heart tonight. So the reality is, whenever you're giving tzedakah to someone, how do we know that it's going to the right place? Or how do you know if you're giving tzedakah righteously, if it's the right mitzvah, if you're doing it the best way that you can be doing it? Are you giving it with all your heart? Are you not giving it with all your heart? And so to start off the class, I'd like to jump into a story of Rabbi Natan of Breslev to be able to begin chipping away at the main concept over here. And so Rabbi Natan of Breslev, after Rabbi Nachman passed away, they had the custom of gathering as many Breslevers as possible to come to Rabbi Nachman for Rosh Hashanah. As we know, Rabbi Nachman discussed it in his lifetime, the importance of Rosh Hashanah, even when he was alive, being with the tzaddik on Rosh Hashanah is incredibly important. And when Rabbi Natan started making his way back to Uman and traveling and bringing people with him, he, they noticed that they were praying in the closest place that they could to the actual kever and the area where they were to be able to help bring people back and be able to do the tefillah on Rosh Hashanah next to the tzaddik. And so for about 10 years, they rented a place and they started outgrowing it. And it was just very troublesome because they never had the right place that they needed. And after about 10 years, Rabbi Natan decided it's time now for us to be able to collect the money to start building the proper cloys, the proper tzion of Rabbi Nachman Breslev, that people are going to be able to come and pray there for Rosh Hashanah to be with the tzaddik specifically for that. So come finally Rabbi Natan's experience after being overwhelmed and seeing that they're out they're outgrowing these spaces multiple times after about 10 years like i said he then starts beginning this incredible speech where he starts talking to people that are around him and he starts telling them now we're going to start beginning collecting tzedakah to be able to build it now just so that people understand at the time breslevers and even still today there's a lot of breslevers that live in tremendous poverty they have literally very little money because they rely solely on the parnasa that hashem is going to give them and they're very, very simple Jews, but at the same time, they have very, very, very little money. We're talking about people that live almost like in third world condition type of livings. So every single Breslover, except for a couple people, were literally supporting the whole town and all the Breslov community. All the people were literally living on literally day-to-day -day salaries. And what was remarkable is that when he was sharing this story, there was one person that was in the room that was overhearing the story. And he was a teacher. He was a more. He was a regular person that teach the student or two during the year, and that's how he made his salary. Now, the way it worked at the time is that he would receive his salary months and months in advance because people would travel, and he would study with a kid or two, and that would be enough money for him to be able to support his wife, his kids, whatever it was, and to support and teach the students um, for the next three months, six months, year. So this one teacher had received that day or that week his money for the next six months. And he came up to Rabbi Natan, he was so moved by what Rabbi Natan was saying, because Rabbi Natan was a very, very special person that spoke from the heart. He came up to him and he said, I wanna, I wanna give you a donation for the, the cloys. I wanna, I wanna donate and help build the, the special place where the breast lovers are gonna come pray next to Rabbi Nachman. And Rabbi Natan recognized very quickly that this man was a teacher and he had very, very little money and he was very, very poor. So Rabbi Natan said, I can't take the money from you. And he said, you can't refuse me the money because I'm giving you my first staka. I'm giving you the staka for the first person that's going to build the cloys. So you cannot refuse it. And he had this tremendous will to want to give money. And Rabbi Natan was still arguing with him back and forth until finally he decided to take the money. For those that didn't even know, Rabbi Natan said 
that he gave him, how much money did he take? Did he have for six months? Six little coins. And that was the amount of money that he had to support himself for food. So now this man was giving literally in a tremendous with nefesh, essentially risking his own life, that he didn't have enough money for his family and for food for the next six months. And was going to teach a kid and donate all of that money just to be able to build the place of Rabbi Nachman. These are the types of people that lived at the time and, and nobody even, you know, we don't even know his name. And, and there were lots of breast lovers that were like this. So this is Mamasha concept within breast of Hasidut, this Mesilut Nefesh, to live in, in correspondence to the Tzadik, to correspond to the Tzadik. But this man, Rabbi Nathan saw, gave everything with his whole heart. So Rabbi Nathan, uh, Rabbi Nathan took the um, took the six coins and he started collecting a lot of donations and through a lot of hard work over the next year or two, they finally built the Kloys. When they finally built it and they came finally to Rosh Hashanah and they came to do the Hanukkah Bait, essentially the Hanukkah to celebrate the new place that they had, Rabbi Nathan got up in front of everyone and started giving a speech. And everyone that donated and everyone came, came here and Rabbi Nathan got up in front of every single person and he said one thing. He said, I want you guys to understand who built this Kloys. And he gets up and he sees in the very, very back corner, the more, he sees the teacher and he said, he built this Kloys. He said, because he gave from his heart every little piece. And he said, you want to know how much it cost him to build this whole cloise? Six coins. And everyone was tremendously moved by this. The reason why I share this story, aside from the fact that that's the place that we go pray, and it's connected to the place essentially that we go pray, and the place that we, we feel so connected to the tzaddik, I connected directly to Truma, because Truma, what we're going to actually start to understand right now, is the whole concept of Truma, which you cannot read through basic understanding of this, is the whole concept of what it is to give Hashem, to build, it's one thing, it's to give from your heart. And Rabbi Nathan teaches us two things. It has to come with longing and it has to come with will. So remember I talked about longing when I talked about the Midrash with the letter Tav, about how the Tav created 400 worlds of longing when he wanted to be able to come into existence and Hashem said, now you're going to have the value of 400. And Hashem, through the value of Ratzon, through the value of a strong longing, was able to create. And that is connected to Ratzon because they're both connected to will. That's why every single Jew has, has to have a tremendous will to want to exist, to will to want to create, to do mitzvah, to do good things. But all of this comes and all of this donation is dependent on will. Okay? That's the preliminary level and that's the foundation for the whole class. That's understanding that. The whole concept of the Truma, the whole concept is giving from your heart because that is what donation is. And so how do we learn from this story? How do you know where your tzedakah goes? Rabbi Nathan teaches us that if you see a person that's poor in the street, for example, and you give tzedakah, if you give it with all of your heart, it goes to the right place. And if you don't give it with, your right, with all of your heart, it won't go to the right place. That's why the people in the Beit HaMikdash, that's why for Rabbi Nathan in the story of the, in, with the Kloys with Rabbi Nachman, he said the people that gave to the Beit HaMikdash, people think if you gave a million dollars worth of gold at the time, the Jews that were traveling in the desert, and let's say they had lots and lots of money, and they thought, oh, they gave a lot of gold, so they contributed to the menorah. It doesn't work that way. It's whoever gave with the most heart who went to the most important places. So a person could have given one gram of gold, but it could have been part of the gold that was on the, the kovim of the ark inside the Kodesh HaGadashim. And it would have ended up there perfectly because Hashem put it specifically there. And it all has to do, and your tzedakah all has to do with exactly how you position your heart. Which actually brings me to a point that I want to share with you guys as I position and pivot into the next part of the class that I want to do. I'm going to start transitioning into time for a second. But to do that, I want to share with you guys uh, something that I was thinking about, which is actually remarkable. At least it blew my mind. I realized today for the first time why it's so difficult and why there's a test in Judaism to be very rich. And the reason why is exactly because of what we learned in Parashat Chumah. 
So I might be completely wrong, but if you guys follow my train of thought, let me know what you think. The reason why I think it's very difficult to be rich is because as follows. If two people are in a shul, and let's say they want to contribute to building a shul, right? And a rabbi gets up and he says, we're going to build a shul next door, and we need money from everyone. And one Jew gets up and he's living month to month and he's very, very poor and he has $100, but he says, this is my shul, this is my rav, this is my community, I want to contribute, and he gives $100. And a man next to him gets up and gives a million dollars. The feeling of the man that gives the $100 is I wish I could give a million. So we learn from Rabbi Natan and from the Kabbalah and from this Sukim and Truma to give from your heart that the man that gave a hundred gave a million. But the thing about the person that gave a million to be worthy of the mitzvah of giving a million, he needs to feel as if he gave a million. So he cannot give a million as if it's worth a hundred for him. Because the people that give a million have tens of millions or hundreds of millions. So the feeling of his million is not that he gives a million, it's that he gives a hundred. And from this, I learned something that was very powerful to me, which is that everything is about the will and how you do things. Yes. So it's very, very important when we do mitzvot and we do any action in general. This is why I think personally, it was the only answer that really gave me that feeling that I understood finally the Gemara on that and why people, it's a very big test to come down as a rich person, is because when you're rich, you're being judged on every moment and every single moment and every single action you give as if it's all the maximum capacity of all the money you have. And that's why it's very complicated to be rich because a person that's very wealthy, a person that has hundreds of millions of dollars or millions of dollars, it doesn't really matter. It's more of a frame set of mind. A person that has even a thousand dollars and lives day to day can feel very rich. But it's about how you feel and how you act with the money. But the truth is, there's nothing more poor than a person that is very rich sometimes. And what I mean by that is that a person that makes millions of dollars a year looks to make more millions of dollars per year, which means that he's poor by the amount that he doesn't yeah. make. But a person that only makes $1,000 a year or $1,000 a month or $1,000 a week or $100 a week, he only looks at, oh, I need to make another 100 So it's a very minimal amount of money. So he lives by very short spreads of money. And he's not so bound by the temptation of money, by the large sums of money. And so that's why there's a tremendous amount of secrets between the heart and the connection to money in this week's parasha. With that, I want to transition to the concept of time. And so with time, I'm going to share with you guys a few things that I think were very perplexing. But the reason why I think a lot of it is very important is because it's going to help us realize, kind of like I was sharing with Mishpatim and Yitro earlier in the very beginning of the class, that there's so many deep things that we learn in the Zohar and Arizal that shows us how little we actually know about the world. So for example, as one thing that I didn't even really think about until right now is that, you know, we'll see in front of our eyes a table. But if you look at this under an electronic um, or uh, under an electromagnetic microscope, and you look at this with the degree in where you can look at the different electrons, neutrons, atoms, essentially being broken down, you'll see that this is 99.999% empty space. And so what's fascinating about it is that you'll see something that's a solid, but the chemistry and the way that the world is essentially bound together and the way that God makes things appear is that even though we're actually looking at complete empty space, there's an illusion that's created that we're actually looking at something that's solid, but really in reality, there's nothing there. That's one step into kind of the illusion of it. The second step is that I was looking at a couple different paradoxes, um, specifically Zeno's paradoxes. That's, um, it was a Greek philosopher, um, essentially around the time of the Gemara. And a lot of his paradoxes in general, this is more just for curiosity of thought, but um, a lot of them were actually answered and explained on a scientific level um, because in reality, um, metaphysics 
can explore a lot more of the questions from some of these paradoxes, which is essentially the study of things that are outside the basic realm of physics. And then there's also the idea that modern calculus and mathematics can answer a lot of these problems as well by solving them through mathematical equations. But aside from the fact that some of them can be solved and some of them can't be solved, it's really perplexing to think about because there's a reality to which these things exist that are still perplexing today. And so two of the famous ones are the dichotomy of motion, I think I wrote down, and um, let me take a look, and the arrow in flight, which I thought were both really fascinating. I'll share with you first the dichotomy of motion one, which is really interesting. So the way I like to break it down is that if you look at a distance of a person running or walking a specific area of space, like let's say, for example, I have to walk from this side of the room to that side of the room, and let's say, or it's more commonly used in a race, and you say, how long will it take me to walk or to race a certain distance, like let's say a mile, and you're trying to calculate that. So when you run the calculation and you look at it in terms of steps and spaces, if you break it up into halves, you get into this paradox, which is really interesting, which he says that if you break something in half and then you break that in another half, and then you break that into another half, looking at motion and time and space, and then you keep on breaking it up into halves, you'll actually realize that you can always break something up into another half. And then he's saying, how can you look at the distance in which you're going to look at running if in reality it never ends? So it's technically infinite. Because if you continue to cut it in half and continue to cut it in half and continue to cut it in half over and over and over and over again, you'll never actually have a space in where you can time someone over a specific length of time if you continue to cut things in blocks. Which is fascinating because on a metaphysical level, it kind of shows you how things are technically... We live in a world that's very bound by nature, and this is how I'm going to kind of try to transition out of this into some of the things within the concept of the heart and prayer. And the difference between sadikim and connection with God as opposed to people that live more in this realm that are trying to be more bound by things that seem like they fit, but they actually don't. The other day I was talking with my mom, it was actually a little while ago in the middle of COVID. I was looking at a TV screen with her that was off, but it was reflecting the light of a light that was on in the room. And I told her, I said, look at that light and look at the color and the tint. And I'm like, we're both looking at it. We both see more or less the same thing. I was like, but look at the reflection and look at the way the light reflects off this TV and look at the array of colors. And it was forming almost this type of bend and this refraction of light that created this rainbow of colors. So I said, why is it that that light looks like that over there, but it looks like that over there? I'm like, which one's the real light? So we have this thing where we live in a reality where even whenever you're talking to people, it's kind of a trippy concept, but you could even be talking to someone that's blind and you could be like, well, what's your version of blue? Even people that are not blind, if we both right now start thinking or if everyone starts thinking, what's the color of the blue outside in the sky, everybody's gonna have a different version of blue. Why is that? So we have these creations that we create in our minds and part of this is because there's an illusion that's going on in the world that removes us from being able to actually see what the real reality is behind things. Something that's remarkable about this is that the Ark, this is written down in the books in the Mifarshim, specifically in this week's Parsha, the Ark, right, the special tabernacle that held the the, te, the, ten, luchot, the ten commandments, the two luchot, the, uh, the two special um, pieces of stone that was engraved by Hashem that was given to Moshe that, that held the ten commandments that was put inside the Ark. The Ark itself that was in the Kodesh Akdashim it says the measurements in the parasha, but it took no space. Meaning that it was there, but it wasn't there. The ark also today, no one knows where it is. And there's different arguments as to where it is. 
The Mashiach, obviously, when the Mashiach comes, is going to be able to reveal to us and be able to bring out the Ark. But how is it possible that there's something that exists within a space that specifically is said that doesn't exist within space? So when Aaron used to walk in, the Kodesh HaKadoshim was very small, but it never took up any of the space that Aaron needed to walk in. Everything that was in the Kodesh HaKadoshim didn't take up any space at all. So how is that even possible? Okay? couple last things just to think about before I start breaking it back down and to come back to the Parashat Chumah. Something that I was thinking about in connection with that, because we are talking about time and space, was the concept of infinity. So let me, let me break this down in a way that I, it was a nice um, example that I think helped elucidate it. A lot of these things are things that we can understand and we can discuss, but they're very hard to wrap our brains around. And the reason why is because we're living in this box with these rules, with these understandings, and we'll never understand anything that's outside that understanding. Infinity is one of those ideas. It's essentially the concept of the or and sof, it's the concept of Hashem. We think so much of Hashem in a limited concept that we don't actually understand that He is unlimited. That He can literally do anything in this world. So if I can add something. Yeah. Um, with the concept of the, the, the different opinions about the uh, third Beit HaMikdash coming down, also about the Beit HaMikdash being here, present, but we don't see it. So I think the Ramah Mipano... Was it the Ramami Pano? The Ramami Pano, the, the student of the Arizal, has a commentary that he shares that when the second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, he says that, and the Ramami Pano was a massive Mekubal. He has lots and lots of teachings of explaining of the Arizal. We actually understand parts of the works of the Arizal because of him. And thanks to him, he says that the, the Greeks came in, or sorry, the Romans essentially, came in and destroyed the temple and it was all an illusion that they envisioned the, the temple burning. But actually what was happened is that the temple was completely taken out of that space and was never destroyed. So everybody witnessed all the different types of crimes that was happening, the burning of the building, the killing of the people, but nothing actually happened in the space. The Beit HaMikdash is completely intact. So there's some opinions that say that the Beit HaMikdash was never actually destroyed. But that is a less common opinion. Less common opinion. But nonetheless, there's a reality to it because, keep in mind, there are items that are still existing from the Beit HaMikdash. There's some people that say that some of the utensils, like the items that were used in the Beit HaMikdash, are actually held in the Vatican. There's some people that say that the Aron HaKodesh is in the Vatican. It's not even possible because anybody, the Aron HaKodesh, no one could even touch the Aron HaKodesh. Mm -hmm. Even the people that lifted it and carried it, it was still floating and driving itself. Mm -hmm. If anyone touched the Aron HaKodesh, they would instantaneously die on the spot. Mm -hmm. So the Aron HaKodesh, it, we know it didn't carry any space and time. It didn't follow the rules of nature. So there's no way that someone, the Romans or the Greeks and, and, and all the people alike would have taken the and then find a way to bring it to the Roman capital, it would not exist. It's not even physically possible. It would destroy the world. Well, the Mishkan in correlation to the Beit HaMikdash, the Mishkan was in the desert. So that's that's why I bring it up. So there's some reality to it, but we don't know that much information about it. Now, back to the concept of infinity, and then I'm going to start jumping into Tchuma again. So the, the most interesting thing that, that I was thinking about in terms of infinity... She got upset? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay, so the best way that I that I saw an example to be able to just ponder this or to think about this, which is which is really remarkable, is um, imagine imagine a world just being completely desolate, if you can imagine this. Imagine the world just being completely empty. And then imagine a massive stadium. Okay? Actually I like talking about stadiums, so I'll talk about a stadium with another example in a second. So imagine the world being completely void. And you imagine this massive, massive stadium that exists. Imagine a soccer stadium, a football stadium, basketball stadium, doesn't matter. Staples Center. Just imagine this massive stadium that's open. And then imagine this one bird, simple bird, maybe a pigeon, a crow, a dove, doesn't matter. 
And think about this dove that comes and he goes to the beach. Let's say Santa Monica, because we're in LA, right? And then he drives, to, and then he flies to downtown LA and he brings a grain of sand and he drops one grain of sand from his beak into the stadium, okay? How much time would it take the bird to fill up the stadium? You think about that for a second, right? Now, let's take it a step further. Imagine the bird took one grain of sand every year. How much time would it take him to fill up the stadium? And then imagine that every 10,000 years. And then instead of a stadium, imagine the world. So what it shows you is that we are living in a world, even though we live a life that's 70 years, 80 years, 120 years, God willing, in good health, and with Baha'i people to achieve our tikkun, Amen. to achieve a tikkun for the world as well. Amen. We're living in what is not even a blink of an eye for the experiences in the other worlds, for the other neshamat. See, the truth is that the people that have already passed away and the people that are going to live are already living a more fulfilling and more lengthy life than we are actually living right now. But there's paradox here. Because how is it that with our life that is not even a blink of an eye for all the experiences that exist and all the time in creation of the world, that one movement we do and one mitzvah we do shakes the worlds. How is that even possible? Right? It's fascinating. Let's take it one step further with one last example and then, and then I'll jump back into the parasha. I wanted to share with you guys something that also that I, that I, um, that I heard was fantastic very, very long time ago, maybe like 15 years ago. But it always stuck with me because I thought it was very powerful. And I think it's one of the best ways to, uh, the best examples really to show people how valuable in Shamayim to Hashem and to the, to the holy angels, a mitzvah that we do on this earth is. The best example I could think of is as follows. So I'm gonna use soccer as an example because I love the sport soccer. And I think you guys will get an example from it and you guys can apply it to anything that you want. So soccer, the most famous tournament within soccer is the World Cup. It takes about four years to come around. And all the teams from around the world compete to see what's the best team and the best players and to see what happens with it. And what happens with the World Cup is the, the, the teams and essentially the players that play in different parts of the world come back to their uniting country. They play games. They qualify for years. They work the best to be the best position so that they're in the best position to play the best, the less, the least best teams and then to play lots of games until they eliminate everyone until they get to the final and win. So now put yourself in these shoes for just a second. Imagine you're being drafted. And for me, this is more of like a you know, childhood dream, like being able to be drafted onto one of the best soccer teams in the world and to be recognized as an international soccer player. But you're working your way up because it's hard work and you're not there yet and you have to go to the gym and you have to train and you're training with the best players and you're playing with the best so that you're becoming the best essentially. And you work really hard and you eventually get drafted into the roster to play for the World Cup team. And you wait four years finally for your shot to be able to come out. And then your team finally positions themselves and they keep on working and they finally qualify. Years in advance, this is a year or two years in advance. Then finally the summer is gonna come around and then they're gonna start the games. And you start playing again with 64, 32 teams and then you eventually start eliminating and you start working your way down. But you don't play that many minutes because you're not that good. So your coach doesn't play you that much. But you start training and you just keep on believing in yourself and you become better and better. It's kind of like the Disney movies whenever you're a kid that like they always start off losing and at the very end they always win the game at the end. So imagine now you play more games, more games, more games. You finally make it to the semifinals, the quarterfinals, um, you know, eventually the finals. And then you get to this place where you're in the final game 
And you can build up this parable however you like, but we can go for a long time on it. But you finally get to the end of the game. It's the last game. Everybody's watching this. The viewership for this is the most watched sport in the world. Everybody's waiting four years for this moment to see who's going to win. The game is tied. 0-0. No one's winning. Your coach finally decides to let you in. The game has gone through 90 minutes. You're in extra time. There's a few moments left. You get led onto the field. Wow. And you're representing your country. Wow. And you have the opportunity, and you can imagine hundreds of thousands of fans, sure, people around the world, and you can feel the goosebumps on your skin thinking about the representation of scoring the goal that everybody sees as the end of the game, the victory, everything. It's, it's, it's earth-shattering. It's insane. He says that still doesn't compare to whenever you do one mitzvah in this world. Wow. That feeling. And so what's really powerful about all of this is that every single thing we do, we don't recognize what the actual value is behind everything. We actually lose track of how the world and the fabric of nature of how God created this world is that it's a complete illusion to make us work for it, to make us look for him, to search for him, to find him. And that's what the Mishkan is about. That's what the Truma is. Before we learn anything, after we get the Ten Commandments, he tells us to build the Mishkan, but he tells us to build it with what? Our hearts. Rabbi Natan teaches us that. You can't understand this parasha in depth without understanding that it's talking about your heart. And the only way to understand the heart is through what Rabbi Natan and Rabbi Nachman are teaching us. Because from the will and how much you're willing to give is how much you're willing to bring Hashem down into this world. So that it could be like in Pasuk 8 over here, that I can live within you. To share this, I want to share a story of Rabbi Yisrael Dovo Deser, a famous breast lover that lived in the last generation. And then I'm going to start transitioning back into Truma. Rabbi Yisrael Dovo Deser passed away about 20-something years ago. Um, closer to 30, actually. Passed away in 94. Massive tzaddik. And he lived in Tiberia um, when he was younger. And he lived in Israel. And he came home one day into his young couple with his wife. And there was a war that was happening in Israel at the time between the British and the Turks. And one of the battlefields that was happening during one of the wars was in an area next to Tiferia. And Rabbi Yisrael Dovo came home after what was probably most likely a day of Ibodidut or prayer or learning Torah. And he saw his wife was distressed because she said that their son had gone out into the battlefield in the middle of the crossfire between the two armies that were shooting at each other. When they saw that he got shot in the foot and fell to the floor, Rabbi Yisrael immediately grabbed his talit wrapped himself in the talit and started walking out onto the battlefield. And for everybody that was there witnessing, everything, all the bullets and everything immediately stopped. Not one bullet touched him. It was almost like a scene out of the Matrix. He walked there completely safe. No one understood who he was. No one knew who it was. Everybody thought it was just an angel because no one understood what was happening. He got to his son, picked up his son, walked off the, the battlefield and where this, where this thing was happening and then walked back home. The reason why I shared in connection with time and space is to show you something very special. There's a lot of stories that I can share about Rabbi Yisrael Dovo that bent time and space. Certainly. There's lots of stories of Tzadikim in where time and space was essentially being bent. It's not essentially that it's being bent. It's essentially that they entered into a reality where they're tapping into worlds that are not playing by the same rules that we're playing by. His son ended up living a very long and healthy life and had a bullet in his leg until, the, until he passed away. And he kept it. 
But the reality is that we don't understand that the Torah and the mitzvot, whenever a person understands what the, what the deep meaning behind a talit is, they don't realize that when they're wrapping themselves in a talit in the morning, what the talit truly is. The talit is the concept of the Oram Akif. It's the concept of the outer light. And when you wrap yourself in it, it's a complete protection of Hashem surrounding you. When you understand that, you understand that you could walk into a battlefield surrounded by Hashem, nothing will touch you. But only He understood that. Very few people understood things like that. But the power of that is incredibly important because everything that we do is we're so influenced by the emotions behind things that we actually forget how to actually connect with Hashem in simplicity using our heart. And that's how Saba Yisrael was. He lived in a way that he did mitzvot by the pure principle of it. He took a talit, he wrapped himself in it, and he walked onto a battlefield to go save his son. Why? Because I'm wearing a talit. Talit equals Hashem protects me. Therefore, nothing can touch me. Therefore, I'm going to be okay. That was the calculation in his head. There was nothing sophisticated about it. It was very, very simple. It was pure emunah. And so before I transition into the last thing, yeah, go ahead. Like, um, what was in the Gemara when that couple didn't have any oil and they used vinegar? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He said, whoever, he called his daughter and he said before Shabbat, he said, whoever, um, whoever said that oil should light, should be able to be conducive for lighting a fire, and may that same creator make it that vinegar should do the same purpose. Essentially being if Hashem said oil can be used to be able to light a match, or to essentially keep fire, then so too let it be vinegar, because who's the one to decide the nature of the world? So now we get into, now we get back into the parasha, understanding this. So part three of the class. <laughs> it says in the, it says that, um, it says v'shachanti betocham um, and not betocho, right? Like as we had said. So now, I, as I said, I wanted to answer the questions in reverse order. So, now I'm going to be trying to answer the question specifically about, um, you know, the wording in the psukim, and I want to I want to dissect some of the wording in the psukim to be able to answer this part to show some clarity to it. By the way, there's also another thing that's really interesting that I didn't get a chance to share with you guys, which which I think is beautiful. Mm. You can bring out the you can bring out the dessert you can bring out the dessert if you want. Yeah, well I'm. Uh, do you want to share something? Did you say you did take a break? Everybody decided to take a break. They heard the word. Hey, what's that? It was not a break. It's good. Okay. You guys have a thirty-second intermission in the middle of a in the middle of a in the middle of a Torah class. We've never actually had this before, but it's good. What did you want to say? We'll be back right after this. What did you want to say about the Talit and Pasha Titro? It's a good time to share. Talk talk out loud so people so the camera can hear. Pasha Titro speaks about a concept where it's in the Pasuk, I think. That's why the Talit has four corners. You're, you're above this concept of uh, anything that in this world that, uh, that can damage you. It's incredible. Also, that's why the Kisa has four four corners specifically for it as well. It's remarkable. Um, 
as everybody is kind of coming back. You know what's funny? I don't know. I can't find this right now, but maybe I'll find it later. So, what do you need? All right, guys. For the uh, kavod of the Torah, let's uh, let's con let's continue with the class. Yeah. We wanted to bring the sweetness of the Torah. Of course. Yes. Chazak. Nice. We fully did a break in the middle of the class, huh? It's <laughs> so funny. Thank you. Thank you. Who wants a piece? Thank you. You showing my cake? Yeah. All right, everyone, we're, we're coming back. All right, so <laughs> that was the first that was the first ever Torah intermission in the middle of the shield, but it's cool. Okay, so we said over here the parasha, right? There was the question about why does it say specifically v'shachati b'tocha, and we're going to look at the specifically, we're going to look at the words in the psukim, and to see the significance of the words, to be able to understand what's happening with this, uh, with the with the first psukim in the parasha, all right? And so it says there's a couple things that I want to focus on in the very beginning, the shachati b'tocha, and the concept over here of the truma in the very beginning where it says um, right so the, the second pasuk and, and the eighth pasuk so in, the reason why i'm bringing this up and the reason why i want to connect this back to the story about saba yishal and the talit and, and all the things that we're talking about with time is because i hope everybody remembered all that stuff since the break okay good so the reason why I'm bringing it up is because actually what happened was during the time when the Bnei Yitzchal were being, um, when they were told about the Truma, is people think that it's very simple that a person would come up in this situation and be like, okay, well, Moshe told the Jews, and they said, Hashem wants you to be able to give him the best you can, your gifts, so that you can put it in the Beit HaMikdash. And what was really interesting is what ended up happening is that the Erev Rav and the people that were essentially evil Jews and don't take evil Jew as being this very, very bad Jew that's a sinner. The evil Jew is a type of Jew, and we discuss this a lot of time, that's disguised. Like we said, the nature of the world is that it works in a disguised way. So, I don't want to make it too controversial, but the types of Jews today, and this is the parallel, and this is where we get back to the class, now is where it starts to get a little bit deeper. 
is yeah. the types of Jews and the types of people that specifically say to Jews, don't give the Tchuma, don't give Tzedakah, don't give yourself over to Hashem, is because you're not worth much. So the reason why the Psukim over here say something, and by the way, this is the most important part of the class, so everybody try to zone in on this, because I know that after the people that are just walking around and talking are not going to be able to remember it, and, we're gonna, and they're going to come back to this. This is where it comes down. This is why specifically the Psukim say, over here, Me'et kol ish, specifically to take from every single Jew. The reason why is because we learned from this, also we learned in the Gemara that we had discussed last in the last few Dvar um, that we gave, is there's the concept of the Rasha, the Benoni, and the Tzadik, the Tzibur, the collective group of Bnei Israel. And Hashem wants to take from every single Jew, from every single heart of every single Jew. The reason why this is important is because the second you start thinking that you are not one that could contribute to Hashem, is the second you don't give the Tuma, and is the second that you fall out of the favor and you fall into depression, you fall down. Why? Because what the Erev Rav tried to do over here and what these Jews tried to do and what Jews even still today try to do is they try to say, you're not a good enough Jew because you're not religious enough or you don't do this enough or you don't do that enough and therefore you're not holy enough to be able to do this. You're not a religious Jew, you don't count. You don't have Olamaba because of this. You don't have Olamaba because of that. You don't get Schar Mitzvah. You don't learn enough Torah. Your Torah means nothing. I was listening to, it's, it's remarkable how you can listen to a Dvar Torah on the same idea but two rabbis can explain it completely differently. And sometimes it can be completely for the good and you're learning something that's incredible. So I get that a lot when I'm learning a Zohar or a Darizal or Rabbi Nachman because you'll get different interpretations, you'll get different visions of what is very, very deep. And the truth is we don't actually understand even a billionth of even a degree of what they were actually talking about. But then you have other people, whenever we're talking about, for example, the Simcha of a wedding, you could talk about the Rav Zusha who would have enjoyed and would have had simcha and would have had enjoyed with any chassidim, any wedding and any Jew and looked at any Jew, even if he was breaking Shabbat or if he was doing any sin, it would have accepted any one of them, like Rabbi Nachman, like the Altar Rabbi, like the Chabad, like the people of Chabad, that they're so accepting of every single Jew. And then on the other side, you have Mit Nadim and you have people that are completely against it. That because a guy doesn't keep Shabbat, because a guy doesn't do Kashrut, because a guy has a mixed wedding or because a guy wants to have mixed dancing at a wedding, all of a sudden, it's remarkable to me how they can speak so bad from their mouth about another Jew. It's remarkable to me. I'm actually shocked. And I heard a class this week. It was a perfect lesson for me with this thing where I learned something where I was at a wedding that there were people that were dancing that was mixed. And I'm listening to a class. Thank God I have Rabbi Nachman as my Rav and I have teachings that teach me otherwise. And I have a rabbi on the internet with thousands of views, thousands of views starting to curse and starting to discuss all the different types of sins that a person is doing. Now, I'm not trying to say that a person is good if a person specifically does a specific sin or anything, God forbid. I'm not in enticing anybody or telling any Jew to do anything that's negative, God forbid. But the judgment towards another Jew, or to say that another Jew is not having the right simcha, it's such a shame. And it's honestly, it's a disgusting representation of our religion. And they have such a little, they have such a small understanding of the Torah and the mitzvot that in reality, they're giving you a perversion. And what they're doing is actually the Erev Rav that they used to do then. And they said, guess what? You can't give... Not because during the Erev Rav example, they would say, you don't have enough money, you're not rich enough to give gold. Where's your, what's, your, what's your six coins going to do? What's your six coin going to do with the cloys of Rabbi Nachman? It was the exact opposite. Most of us don't think that way. But he was saying more than that. It's not about your money, that you don't have money, you can't give tzedakah. Tzedakah is taught by one thing, it's taught about the heart. You want to give a donation to the rabbi, you have a rabbi that you like very much, or you want to help out with a, a, a mitzvah or something, you want to go visit someone that's sick, you want to go give a gift to someone that's a friend of yours, it's considered tzedakah. 
These things, all these actions are considered big mitzvot. But don't ever think that a dollar that you give to someone in the street to a poor person is something small because it's a dollar. It's not. It can be literally a dollar that you give to your Rav whenever you're praying shacharit and you just put in the kupas daka. It can be $1 million if you actually believe that. The problem is you don't. But in reality, it is. But then to take it a step further, what was the Rav Rav doing? They were saying not that they didn't have enough money to contribute because they're not worth anything. He was saying because the whole concept of Tchumaz Delev. They were saying, you're sinners, you're Rishayim, you can't contribute to the Beit HaMikdash. Mm. They were trying to depress the Jews because they are far from Hashem to try to not allow them to be able to contribute and find their place in the Beit HaMikdash. But the whole point is, Hashem wants to dwell within each one of our hearts, not within the Beit HaMikdash. He wants to dwell within the Beit HaMikdash. He wants to specifically dwell within our hearts. So to be able to explain this in a little bit of deeper fashion, now we're going to start going deep into the whole concept of the tshuva and the and the, the tchuma and, and what it means to give with your hearts. It says, me'et kol ish. The word me'et that was arguably supposed to be superfluous, to be extra, if you break out the word me'et, you can spell it in an anagram as emet. So the emet is to take from every Jew. Okay? That was the first part, first hidden part of the psukim in the second part of the psukim. Right? Now, rearrange the letters of me'et. Why is the word me'et also necessary? Because if you remove the aleph, which is the concept of Hashem, you have what? Met. So if you remove Hashem, the aspect that he's accepting from every single Jew, then you have what? Death, which is essentially the separation of Hashem from this world. Take it a step further. If you then flip the word met, which is the concept of death, the whole concept of purim, which we're about to enter into actually, which is nafohu, to flip it backwards. Anytime, by the way, in this month, just as a little asterisk, if you're ever thinking about something that you're struggling with work-wise, health-wise, um, financial-wise, uh, family relationships, happiness, whatever it is, whatever you're looking to, this is the month that you have to believe, this is maybe why we're even doing this class altogether, whatever struggles we're all going through, understand with your heart and with your prayer, with your bodhidut, that this is v'nafohu. This is the time right now to flip everything, to bend time, Okay? Whenever you flip the word met, you have the word tam, which is simple. And Abi Nachman spoke a lot about a simple Jew. In fact, we may not have a, little, a lot of time right now because we actually ended up going a long time into this class. We actually have about another 5-10 minutes left. But as we wrap that up, I want everybody to uh, potentially, if they have some extra time, to be able to look at the channel that we have. Because under one of the Breslev fundamental classes we have, we have a class on Simcha. Uh, we have a class not only on Simcha, but maybe that's a good class too. But we also have a class on Simplicity. And the simplicity of Rabbi Nachman to show you that the sophistication is essentially, the, the deepest level of sophistication is simplicity. And that the biggest tzaddikim, the biggest mikubalim try to attain simplicity. And Moshe actually gives a class, but it's a fantastic, fantastic class. And I was floored by the class myself listening to it. Um, there were some things in it that I myself didn't know. And I, was, and I study a lot of this stuff with Moshe and, and a lot of these things within these classes. And it's incredible to think how a simple Jew can do everything in front of Hashem and literally can accomplish everything that they're meant to do. So Bezat Hashem, I'm going to ask Moshe to share a little story um, in corresponding to the power of being a simple Jew. But the beauty of it is that once you turn and you come back from the dead and essentially come back from this depression and this darkness and you become simple and you try to come back to Hashem with a heart, a simple heart, you add the Aleph back, you become Emet and then you allow for this concept of Me'et Kol Ish. So that's a little bit within the words that are specifically being used over here. We have to understand that every single Jew is important, every single Jew is valuable, no matter what their background is. Now, Binatan says something incredible. He says, how do we know that the Tchuma still exists today? All this point, that's why we're sharing all this, because we're talking about the Torah. Most people will read this parasha and just fly by it, and they won't understand, oh, we're talking about the Menorah, 
We could have done a whole class. I could have been here for two, three hours just explaining to you guys the secrets about the minoha, the reason why the branches, the different holidays that are signified in the branches, the height, the measurements. It's incredible. We can do a class just on the minoha. We could do a whole class just on the ark. We didn't even do that because of the zohar and stuff like that. There's incredible, incredible things within these pasha. But nobody, they just skip over the concept of what it is to do, give truma. Most people don't even know what truma actually is with the pasha. Just to give from your heart to Hashem. But the truth is that it's found within the concept of the heart. And that is what it is, is the true concept of tzedakah. And the true concept of being able to give Hashem and build that. So Rabbi Natan teaches us the concept of truma still lives today. How? Because whenever we build out our mind, which we learned whenever we learned in Yitron Mishpatim, which are the two pasha before this, we gained a sense of chokhmah. We learned the laws and we gained the Torah. But that's all within the mind. Separately from that, the second you start doing what? The second you have your heart, which is entered into this week's parasha, you allow for this whole concept of being able to be a complete human being, between having a mind and a heart that works together. And they have to be working together. It's very important. Because there's aspects wherever the mind needs to be above the heart, and there's aspects wherever the heart shows the real connection to Hashem. But Rabbi Natan shares with us something that's fascinating. He says what? He says the mind... He says is the is the Beit Hamikdash in general, because the mind is the place where you can develop all the thoughts, all the imagination, all the ideas, all the Torah, all the mitzvot. It's where you store the Torah. It's wherever you act. It's wherever you do everything that you need to do. Whenever it sinks in, and it's the Chochma Bina Da'at. It's the concept of the Mochin, the Keter, all the upper levels. He says something very special though. He says that the heart is the Kodesh Hakdashim, is the special and the most holy, sacred place of all, and that's why we answer now. The beginning question, which is why does Hashem specifically start off with teaching us in the very beginning about building instead of teaching us about building the foundation, he starts off with building with the Kodesh of Hashim, with the Ark. Why? To teach us that the most sacred place in the first words of Truma before he gives any measurements is to give from your heart. Why? Because if you want to build a place where I can dwell within you, you have to develop your heart. And the only way to develop your heart is to be able to develop those two things we talked about, the longing and the will. Because whenever you have a will to get close to Hashem, and you have a will to do a Torah mitzvot, and you have a will to be able to break time, space, nature, everything that exists within the world to try to get close to Hashem and build a relationship with Hashem, you are creating a space where Hashem can then work with you and live within you and act as a merkava with you, just as he did with these tzaddikim, that you wrap yourself in a tzalit and you believe what you're doing. When you put on your tefillin in the morning and you wrap your hand in the middle finger, you understand that you're marrying Hashem. The whole concept of the nature of this parasha and the parasha before it are to show us that there is no nature to the world at all, in fact. Even though one of the names of Hashem is Elohim, which is Gematria, Hateva, which is nature, in fact, in reality, there is no aspect of this. It's complete, it's a, fabric, it's a fabrication of the imagination. Hashem created it. It's the greatest facade that ever existed. And the Yitzhak plays to our imagination, and he beats us at it every single time. So whenever a person understands that they have their chokhmah, and they have the capacity to be able to learn Torah and do that, and then activate parts of their heart, which then acts as, as the Kodesh HaKadashim, through tefillah and through hidbodidut, which is the aspect of outpouring of the heart and connecting to Hashem, we now tap into the last thing which I wanted to share with you guys. Something that's always really remarked, really moved me, really, is um, the idea of the simple Jew, like we said, with the concept of tam, and the ability to be able to pray out to Hashem. And so, unfortunately, in the last week, I've heard of more losses than that I've had in the last year. I don't know why, it just happened this way. It was mamash mina shamayim. And I'd lost some family friends and, and, and some other people. And, and we had lost a uh, person that comes to the class as well, her mother. And, um, and it was just really shocking to me. And so part of the class, I actually want to talk about death, but I pivoted away from it because I don't want to spend so much time in that. Um, but something that's remarkable is as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about the value of how much do our prayers actually matter? 
in connection with, like I said, with the other things. How do you know how far your tzedakah goes? How do you know, why does he start, all the questions of truma in Hashem and the nature of the world and time and space. So if the world is really that bendable and it's that incredible, then, then how do we know what, that even a single movement that we do actually means something? And so my friend had the same question when he received a couple stories that he forwarded to me of stories about a simple person reading Tehidim. So I'd like to share with you a couple of those stories really quickly. The reason why these are powerful is because it's simple people. They're simple people that are not specifically stories of Tzadikim, and I think that's what makes it even more powerful. It's to show you how even a simple Jew that reads a simple book and says a simple prayer can do something very powerful. So the first story I heard, which I thought was incredible, they're both incredible, is that this woman that traditionally would drive from Yerushalayim to Tel Aviv, this woman's still alive today, um, and this story just happened like recently, I mean it happened within the last decade, um, she, she was driving between uh, Yerushalayim to Tel Aviv to work, and one day on the way to work, there was a car accident on the road. So as she was driving, normally as she does as a good religious Jewish woman that has this practice, she opened up her glove compartment in her car and she started reading Tehilim while the cars were at a standstill. She said, I have a few minutes, so why not? I'm just going to start praying. And she saw that there was a car accident, so she started doing some Tehilim. And she figured if there's a person that's sick or there's a person that's hurt or whatever, be able to help them. As she started reading Tehilim and the cars eventually started to move and she made her way through traffic, she saw that there was a person being carried out on a stretcher. Person looked dead. Person didn't really know much about it. She went to work. The day went on. 30 days pass. She then is showing up to school to be able to go check in on her daughter at a parent-teacher conference equivalent nights. And someone taps her on the shoulder and tells her, um, can I speak to you for a second? And she says, um, sure. And she's a little bit shocked because she doesn't know the person. And she says, I know that you don't know me, but I know you, the woman says to her. She says, were you driving 30 days ago on this highway on the way to Tel Aviv when you saw a car accident? She said, yes. Um, and what does that mean? And she said, I want you to know that I was the person on that stretcher. And I was a person that was pronounced clinically dead on the spot, which means that the people on this, whenever they saw her, they felt her pulse and she wasn't breathing and she was essentially pronounced dead on the spot because they have to time it and they have to report it in a specific way. And after I was being carried out, I, my body, I had this outer body experience. And there's lots of people that talk about outer body experiences. And there's people that talk about clinical deaths and having passed away. There's lots of stories like this. There's mm. tremendous amounts of them. You can look them up. Religious, non-religious, non-Jewish also. It's, it's an incredible concept, Indeed. by the way. It's fascinating. And she said, as my body was leaving, I started rising out of my body. And I started seeing the whole world. And I started seeing that from your car came words of Tehidim. And those words were pushing me back into my body. And she said, because of your Tehidim, my life was saved that day. And she didn't even know it. That's story number one. Story number two. A woman was sharing a story out of Canada about her nephew, I believe. And she was saying how there was this man, or her nephew got a random invitation to... A seuda toda, essentially a, a, a seuda, essentially a, a, a meal where they were going to say thank you for something. Usually people do that after a person was very sick or has a car accident or a near-death experience maybe or something to say thank you for um, the miracle that occurred. Now, he gets invited by this person that he barely knows. By the way that the woman was explaining the story, the person maybe only even knew about the person or spoke to the person once maybe. Um, and decides to show up to this invitation because the person was very adamant about them showing up. 
And when he shows up, he doesn't see the person that invited him, or meet the person that invited him, but nonetheless meets 18 other or 17 other people that are in the room, that are there also. And they slowly start recognizing that none of them know each other really well or at all, depending on who is in the room. And they don't know why they're there. Eventually, the balabait, the, the owner of the house, walks in the room. And he says, I want to explain to each and every one of you why you guys are here. And he tells them that not shortly before the Seudatuda, he was on his deathbed in a hospital, diagnosed with some sort of disease, and had clinically passed away. And as he had passed away, and they had pronounced him dead, as his soul also had left his body, his mother, he started having this interaction where he was starting to reach out towards his mother in heaven that already had passed away. And the mother started saying, what are you doing here? You're not ready to come up here yet. He said, I want to go back down. He said, but I can't, I don't know how. And then the mother pointed down and said, these are 18 people that are reading Tehilim for you specifically because you're sick, because you're on their lists and grab onto those Tehilim and go down because that's the strength that you will take to be able to go down back into the world. And the man was able to use the strength of connecting to those Tehilim to be able to come back down, to be able to survive. And he invited all those 18 people to his Seudatuda to be there. And this recently just happened. And the person, the last, really, the nugget on top and the cherry on top is that the person that shared the story with his aunt, that shared the story with people over video, that I had then eventually got in the video, is that she said that not only did he not really remember praying so much for this person in general, he said he sat down and read one tailing. He just sat down and did one tailing for the person. He didn't do anything more than that. It's not like he prayed for him a long time. He didn't do fasting. He just opened up the book and did one tailing. Wow. So we oftentimes forget how one little action, one little movement, and I try to reinforce a lot of times with the classes that we do, that every little movement and every single little action, every single thought we do, does incredible things in the upper worlds. Same thing as the example with the parable with the soccer goal, but everything we do has a crazy ripple effect into the upper worlds. And so with that, I want to finish with a, a couple last ideas that I that Hashem was gracious enough to gift me when I was learning this parasha. Hashem gave us the 13 Midot HaChamim. And I want to share with you guys this at the very end because the number 13 right now is going to become very specific. Hashem gave us the 13 Midot HaChamim when Moshe went up after the Jews had sinned with the golden calf and Moshe essentially told Hashem, listen, they're going to sin. It's going to happen. You can't do anything about it. I need you to give me proof that you're going to protect them even after I pass away and everything. I want you to make sure that you're going to be a God that's HaChamim towards them forever into eternity because there's only so much I can do even after I pass away, but I also need protection down here. So what happened was Hashem told Moshe, he revealed to him the 13 Midot HaChamim. Hashem, Hashem, El Rachum Vechanun, El Rapam Avchaseb Emenu, Tzachesed L'Alafim, Nosayamam Mepeshav Vechata Benakeh. Those 13 words are very special. We read it often in the Tefillah. We read it every single day on days that we do Tachanun. We do it specifically a lot on Yom Kippur. It's a very, very powerful prayer. It's to show us the abundant kindness of Hashem. Hashem, there's two opinions, but we hold mainly the opinion that, and I'm going to focus on the opinion, that says that Hashem gave us the ability to build the Mishkan after we did the golden calf. To show us something that, it's not that He asked us to do a Mishkan before we had sinned, because the golden calf's coming up. But in reality, Hashem saw us sin, saw us as Cheshaim, technically, or has people that sin, not Cheshaim, people that sin, and does what? Me'et Kolish, from every single Jew. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how bad you are, I want you to give me and help me build the Beit HaMikdash from your heart, from as much as you can give. Because in reality, even though you sin, I know from the bottom of your heart you won't have a connection with me. 
that you want to have a connection with your Father in Heaven. And so when Moshe had this 13 Midot al-Hamin that he receives from Hashem, which is deeply connected to the Toma, I want to now just focus on the number 13 with a couple last thoughts as we wrap up this Torah. The 13 is also, if you look and you count the things that are offerable in the Psukim right here, starting from Gimel until, until Zayin in the Psukim, the sections of giving gold, copper thing, and then the, the, the veins of the goats and stuff like that, and all the strings and all the, the different types of things that they could, they could offer, there's 13. 13 to correspond to the 13 Midot al-Hamim of Hashem, to show you that even if you want to contribute, no matter how far you've gone and no matter how low you are, you can always contribute back to Hashem and you can always give to Him because of the abundant kindness that He has. That's number one. Number two, we learned in these fast few weeks also the concept and now we're doing it now, which is the Machatit shekel the counting. We also have the coins with Purim. Why is it half a shekel? So I started thinking about the concept of half. You know what I realized? 13 is half of 26. And the significance behind that is very important. Why? Because we talk about love in this world. We talk about the connection of Hashem in this world. We talk about how is it that we can be able to bring Hashem down into this world. And that's why you see whenever two people love each other very much. And by the way, what is the gematria of love? Ahava, 13. So you have all these ideas that just started hitting me in the middle of the day and now I want to try to bring them all together. You have the machatita shekel, which is the whole point of it is to give half of a shekel, which is to give half of yourself. To say that even though you're not complete, you're not complete until you unite yourself with Hashem, with another source. The whole point of Judaism, that another person marries another person and combines their souls with another person, is the whole combination of two ahavas, two echad, to make 26, to make Hashem. That's why there's three forms of, that's why there's three people that create this Hashem, the husband and the wife, whenever there's a child that's being born. And all of this is a unification of love and being able to do marriage. The, all the miracles that occurred, by the way, within this is the Luchot were rounded and the Ark was square. And all of the concept is that square is the concept of being finite. That's why we say a person is a very square-minded person or thinks in a very boxed way, that they think in a very rigid type of thought process. But the whole concept of the circle is infinite. That's why when a person gets married, we specifically hand them a ring to put on their finger because it's circular. Also, it also has a Kabbalistic significance that it's infinite. The whole concept of infinity. And what Hashem did is He entered and He allowed for a box to enter into a circle. Because this whole world is created in circles. Even if you start studying things within physics and mathematics, whenever you look at rho and you look at the different types of calculations on something that's called the golden ratio, if you ever want to research it, how circles exist and there's different mathematical ratios in the drawings of da Vinci's, in the mathematical equations behind pi, all the unifications of God and the different types of things within the natural realm of the world, within Elohim, within Hateva works within realms of circles. But what God did is he squared off a circle and he circled off a square. He essentially brought something that's impossible within something that's possible. And that's the concept of the Aaron Kodesh, to bring in the square in the Kodesh Akdashim, which is round. Which is the whole concept of bending space and time and nature to allow for us to have all of this. And when you do this, you understand that the whole concept of Braslev is specifically this. It's unifying your heart. That's why Braslev is a play on words between Brit of Lev. It's a sacrificing of your heart. That's why Rabbi Nachman, all he says is, I want you to give me your heart and I will turn it from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh and break your heart to be able to make yourself be able to have a heart that I can come back to Hashem. And Moshe was telling me earlier before the class, Rabbi Nachman says famously, if you give Rabbi Nachman your heart, he says, I will turn you completely white in front of Hashem. You'll be clean as if it's Yom Kippur. The reason why is incredibly powerful with two last things. <laughs> and all these things hit me at the end, so I had to share them with you because I think, honestly, they were... They were so incredible when I when I realized them. I just I had to share it. When you look at the word ahava, I started saying, okay, ahava is thirteen. That's cute with the connection with all of this. 
and I started writing that down. But then I said, you know what, let's go a little bit deeper. So I looked at what the male of Ahava is. And the male is whenever you do the gematria on the full spelling. So if you spell Ahava and male, it's Aleph Lamed Pei, He Aleph, Bet Yutaf, He Aleph. And if you do the numerical value of all of that, it's 535, which is the same gematria as Basar Lev, which is what mm -hmm. Rabbi Nachman says, that if you give me your heart, I'll turn it into a heart of flesh. But what is it to turn it into a heart of flesh? is that through your love of the Torah and the Mitzvah, through your love of connection to Hashem, then I'll be able to allow for you to now build the Mishkan of Hashem. Now you can live with it. So what's the whole point of what Nachman does? Is he tries to teach you that if you give him his heart, he'll allow you to be able to build a Mishkan within you. You can allow for Hashem to come down. Because Hashem did not want to descend. It's not even physically possible to think that Hashem can descend into one space. Because Hashem, there's a greater question to all the questions, which is what makes us think that there's one place that Hashem is going to have his Shekhinah? Isn't the whole world encompassed with Hashem. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, is that we learn from this, and we learn from Betocham and Betocha, or Betocho, that we learn specifically that Hashem wants to dwell within each and every single one of our hearts. But the only way to allow Hashem to dwell within your heart is if you circumcise your heart. You bring Hashem into the concept that you bring Hashem into everything that you do. That you sacrifice from yourself. You bring all your love and you bring what? You bring all the longing and all the will. All the will to get close to Hashem. That even if you've sinned, even if you've gotten bad, and even if you've done something wrong, you could come back up. That is what the true Tuma is. It's to give a dollar of tzedakah, but feel as if you're giving a million. Because every moment is a moment of simcha that you live with Hashem. And to take it to one last step further, the word lev, I did another gematria that I thought was fantastic. If you write out the word lev, specifically, which we know is gematria 32, if you write it out in Malay as well, you have lamed, which is spelled lamed memdalet, and we have bet, which is bet yutav. If you read those words, I notice that you can also read them as actual words in Hebrew. Lamed, right, limud, can be spelled the same way. And bet, which is bait. So then I had a question on my own thing that I was learning. And I said to myself, okay, well then what is this house of study? What is the whole point of the heart? What is the house of study that allows you to understand the heart? And Rabbi Nachman gives us the answer to that in the first word in the Torah, Bereshit. And Rabbi Nachman says that Bereshit is an anagram. The Kabbalah talks about it in lots of different types of ways. There's lots of different types of anagrams. Anagrams are just changing up the order of letters to be able to spell something different. Rabbi Nachman says, read Bereshit as Rosh Bait, the head of the house. And he says, who's the head of the house? The Tzadik Yisodolam. And he's the Tzadik Yisodolam. So he says, you want to understand what Lev is? You want to understand what the learning of the house is? Go to the head of the household. And that's something that hit me at the end when I was learning this to be able to understand that Tchuma, if you look at the word Tchuma, it's made up of what? Torah Mem is how you can spell it. And Mem is a reference of the heart. Why? Because it says over here, Hashem says, take for me a truma. Why does he say it twice at the beginning and at the end? Because li is gematria 40. Lamed and yud is 30 and 10, which is 40, representing the heart. To take for me within your heart. And if you look at the words, me'at, like we said before, me'et, right? The mem in the beginning is the representation of the 40. The aleph is the representation of Hashem. And the tav is the 400, which is the concept of the ratzon, like we had discussed in the previous parashiyot. So within taking from every single Jew, you have the concept of taking from within the heart of, of every single person's connection to Hashem, which is the connection with the heart. Because the Mem is the heart, the, for, the, um, the Ratzon is the will within the heart, and then Hashem is that. And together with all that, you can have the connection of all of Ben Yisrael. So we have all of this to be able to come full circle. And whenever you have this exact same story, you have the, com you have the combination of 40 also showing from the Torah Mem, the heart, in multiple places in the Torah. You have it with Moshe, which is the concept of Mashiach. And you have the concept with Noach, which is the Tzaddik. 
And Noach, what was the concept of 40 with Noach? With the Mabul? 40 days. Exactly. The flood was for 40 days. Why? Because the Jews at the time had so much destruction within themselves that they didn't know how to find love within one another. Why was the temple destroyed? Because they didn't have Ahava. Ahavat Chinam. Ahava is the 13, which is the 13 to the Chamim, which is the contributions that you can give. That's why Ahava is significant to all of this. And the Malay Ava Ahava is the Basar Lev, to be able to do the Brit to your Lev. And Moshe is what? Moshe is Moshe Mashiach. And Moshe is also Gematria Ratzon, will, which is the concept of the envy that want to get close. So what makes a person a Tzaddik? The envy and the will that they have to want to get close to Hashem. That's all bought within all of these concepts over here. And that's why Moshe had to go up to get the Torah for 40 days. Not because he had to go learn the Torah for 40 days, and not because he was learning the Torah, but because he had to understand the concept of the heart. Because Moshe was even asking Hashem, how is it possible that every single person can give? Even Moshe was learning this from Hashem. And Hashem taught him, as the Tzadik Yisodolam, the Moshe Mashiach, he taught Moshe, no, everything has to do with the heart. And that's why it's a Torah man. That's the concept of Tchumah. That's why Rabbi Nachman says the question of why is the temple going to come down from heaven and it's not going to be rebuilt? Because the best answer to that question is that in reality, we are building that temple. And it's going to come down from heaven. It's both. You want to know how? Because Rabbi Nachman explains in lesson two the concept of Moshe and he, con and he connects it with the Zohar and the concept of Shiloh and the future building of the Beit Amidash. Because only Moshe and the Neshama of Moshe, which is Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Shumar Bar Yochai, the Arizal, and the Bar Shem Tov, only in that concept, they have the understanding that they know how to build the Mishkan, because they know the secrets of how to take the heart of every single Jew and put it in the right place. Because they take the offerings of every single Jew and they put it in the right place. So Rabbi Nachman says, what are, how are we building the third temple now? Your tefillot, your hibodidut. And when you pray to Hashem every single day, and you have a good will, and you give a tzedakah, and you do a good mitzvah, and you do something in an action, and you connect yourself to the tzaddik, then what you do is your every single moment, every single tear, every single breath, every single energy, every single will is specifically building. And the more will you have, the better the location your tefillot are in the Beit HaMidash that is being built right now. And he's placing it. So the simple Jews that are doing Tehidim on the street are putting their tefillot and they're building the Kodesh HaKadashim. And unfortunately, there may be people today that might be studying to all day long in Yeshiva and they might not even be doing the tiles on the outside. And we learn from this something very special, that every single person needs to have a humility and a tmimut and a simplicity and be able to get close to Hashem. To understand that every single Jew matters, even a rasha, even a tzaddik, every single person comes together to give the tchumah. And bezat Hashem, in the merit of all these holy tzaddikim, may we have the opportunity to see the third temple come down and celebrate that. Amen. 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 If anyone has any questions, we can take some questions. <laughs> take from me. Take from you? Yeah. Oh, exactly. That's what I was saying. It's part of the words. I was saying that it's it's bizarre how he says, take for me and specifically me. But we explain the li because the li is the of mem, which is the 40, to show you that it's the Torah mem. So that's why he's saying for me. But if he's saying give also sometimes, that's why it's interesting in some of the parashiot when God will use the words because he says bo el paro. Why does he say bo el paro? He says come to paro. Why doesn't he say lech el paro? which we learned in a few weeks past yeah. ago, right? It's an interesting yeah. question. The reason is because one answer, a very simple answer, is because if someone's saying come, it's because they're asking you to come to them. Meaning that Hashem was telling Moshe, come to me, and Hashem was down in Mitzrayim with them, suffering in the darkness. So you learn that Hashem is with you in the darkness, in the sadness, in Mitzrayim. When he's saying come, he's saying also come to me. I'm also in Egypt. I'm suffering there with you. I will be there with you. We know from the Zohar that the Shekhinah, went into Galut, and the Shekhinah is still in Galut today, that 
the Jews have the opportunity to be able to elevate the sparks that exist in the world and to help bring the Shekhinah to the salvation that it can then be recoupled with the Kutu which is essentially the Zerantin, which is the masculine aspect of Hashem, but away from away from all the Kabbalistic stuff, that's that's the basic idea. Any other questions? Yeah, well, during Purim, we also have the concept where we give the coins, but the Machatita Sheka we had Parashat Shkalim last week. Yes. And it's the, it's the way that the Jews did the census. It's the way that the Jews were counted. So every Jew gave half a Shekel, and that was the way that they counted. But it's bizarre because I was thinking about it when I was working on, on this Zvatoa. I was like, why do they give half? Isn't it easier to count by saying everyone gives one and then you just count all the ones and then you have the number? Instead, you have to get all the numbers and then you cut it in half. Yeah. So, um, so it's kind of interesting. But, um, but I think it's connected because the whole concept is part of halves is understanding that we're all parts of other halves. That we, even the concept of Gilgulim, last week's parasha Mishpatim, the Zohar says that we learn all the concepts of Gilgulim and all the Kabbalah of Gilgulim from the Parashah of Mishpatim. Most of the sections in the Zohar and other Parashiyot discuss Gilgul, uh, may discuss Gilgulim, even the Alizal talks about another Parashiyot, people reference it, but most of the teachings of Gilgulim come from the Parashah of Mishpatim. And Mishpatim teaches us that when you learn Gilgulim, you realize that you know absolutely nothing about the world. Just listen to a couple stories to the Baal Shem Tov about how some Jew is coming to rectify something about another Jew from 300 years ago, and you're just floored. When you all this whole Dvar Torah, it's inc it's incredible. But then, I mean, all these rabbis would have so much difficulty listening to a story of the Baal Shem Tov because whenever he tells you that there's this person that doesn't even keep Shabbat, doesn't keep Kashrut, but does one Teilim and he does his whole Tikkun in one lifetime, when other people come back five hundred times, right? It's remarkable. So that's the beauty of not being able to judge. That's why Rabbi Nachman and the Hasidim in general are just very against judgment. It's it's very 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 bad to judge another Jew. Very very bad. Terrible. The beauty is that hopefully through the love that we have and the concept, the concept of Ahava, that we'll be able to rebuild this temple with Ahava, Ahavat Chinam. And that's why if you look at specifically Breslev Chasidut, everything that they're about is specifically this concept of the Torah. The Brit of the left, sacrificing your heart, finding Hashem in every single thing that you do, looking at every other Jew, finding a way to give, no matter what it is, the Messiah Nefesh of being able to give six coins to be able to build the cloys is um, it's unprecedented. But that's the whole concept of Yibodidut. It's the sacrificing of one's heart to carve it from stone into something that's a heart of flesh. Basar mm -hmm. There's a story about Shem Tov on this, what you just said. That um, the Baal Shem Tov, uh, someone came to visit him, telling him that his son went completely off the path of Torah and Mitzvot. So back then, the custom 300 years ago was once the very religious had a kid that went off the path, they completely shut him off and throw him out of the family. That's the way it worked back then. It was almost, they would, they would sit Shiva for seven days. Yeah, and so And they completely separate themselves from the kid. So, so when the Bashem Tov heard this, and he heard of the parent the father's reaction, so when the father came to him, the Bashem Tov told the father, he said, it's no wonder that your kid isn't coming back, it's because of the way you reacted after it. So he said, maybe show him a little love and you'll see that he'll come back. And a week later, started acting a little differently and the kid did Shuba. So that's exactly that, you know. In this generation specifically, whenever you judge people, then it's the beginning of the destruction. It's really only up to the final activity. Of course, it's the whole concept of Azamra. And when we do Azamra, we're slowly, slowly building by bringing together all the souls of every single Jew.
If I can, maybe what I'll do, I'll take your question in a second. If I can, what I'll do, maybe I'll, I'll try to do the, I, I prepared a class, I didn't end up doing it, but maybe I'll try to record it on Parashat Mishpatim on the Gilgulim, but it's really well connected to this because when you see the fact of how Gilgulim work, for the little that we understand of it, you realize that every interaction that you have with every single Jew, that's why sometimes when I'm doing the classes, I'll, I'll call people out by name. I'll be like, good question to this person or that, because there are times when I'm hearing a class that was given two and a half years ago, and he'll say something, but David, wait, there's something, and he's talking to someone in the room two and a half years ago, and he says something about David, and I'm listening to the class, and I have something that I'm struggling with, wow. and it speaks to me specifically of what I need to do that week. If you're paying attention, there's moments like this that happen in life, and God's speaking to you in every single action. And Abi Nachman talks about that. He says that everything that's happening to you in life is Hashem speaking to you. Mm-hmm. So it's a concept of emunah. It's a concept of allowing for yourself to create within your heart and your mind a vehicle that Hashem can live with you. And the Gilgudim is the best Torah to learn about this because you realize how interconnected we are. When you see another Jew, you there's things that are like, you might see another Jew walking down the street. Just the look that you gave to that other Jew, that smile, there's stories. I mean... I know one off the top of my head of a person that shared with me that they knew from experience that happened to them that a person wanted to commit suicide and just the way that this one rabbi looked at them that day and they ended up doing chuba and getting some help that they needed some, some help the person smiled to them when the person was on the way to commit suicide and that feeling that they got that someone cared about them that loved them even though they didn't know them that they had meaning to their life changed their mind mm-hmm. sometimes the moments that you're living and the experiences that you're living and the, and the things that are happening to you are not for no reason. Every single moment, every single breath, every person that's here needs to hear something here. Maybe they need to hear it from something from someone else. Maybe it's another story, maybe it's another experience. That's why I encourage everybody to speak as much as I can. Sometimes I'm in the middle of an idea, so I might continue, but it's very, very important because everything that happens, happens for a reason. And people need to understand that. And when you start tapping into understanding the way God works, then you can separate yourself from the nature of the way God works. And then you can start tapping into the concept of tzaddikim. But every single one of us has the capacity to be a massive tzaddik. Not that tzaddik is odolam, but a big tzaddik. Mm-hmm. But a very, very big tzaddik. Because that's already something that was before at the time of the world. But it's very, very special. Sorry, Sarah. Well, I just wanted to ask the translation for Amzana. Amzana. Um, sorry, what word? Amzana? Oh, I think Amzana. The word you said. Azamra. Oh, Azamra. So Azamra is, um, I, oh, I will sing. Yeah. It comes from the word in Hebrew like zimar, like yeah. it's like a, a song. It's a song, but azamra is I will sing. So the yeah. the reason why the, the lesson Azamra. of azamra is is so special in um, in Breslev Chasiut, and it's, it's one of the most famous teachings of Nachman. In fact, Rabbi Nathan even says you can survive off this lesson, just this lesson alone. Just any Jew can just learn, just live with this lesson, and that's it, and complete their tikkun just with this lesson. Which is the concept of I will sing to Hashem with my little bit. It comes from a pasuk in Tehilim, Azamra Lelokai um, I will sing to Hashem with the little bit that I have. It's the being able to find a little bit of good within yourself. Because whenever you're down and you fall into depression and you get into this darkness, you start seeing yourself bad. And by the way, it's a beautiful question because it made me realize something that I didn't share with people. We talked about the whole concept is will, the heart, being able to refine your heart. And what is the whole work of the Satan and the Yetzirah? Is when he gets you into depression, he removes your will. He removes Ratzon. And when you remove Ratzon, you remove the concept of Moshe because Ratzon Moshe. And you remove what? The concept of being a tzaddik. So you have the opportunity to be a tzaddik if you have will. And when you have good will, you become Moshe. And that's why Azamra is the ability to find something good within yourself. Find something good within another Jew. To look at the other Jew and smile. 
to not speak badly about other Jews. If another Jew goes to a wedding and is dancing in a mixed wedding party, who cares? Who cares, honestly? Seriously, it's, ins it's remarkable to me how they can judge another Jew negatively. If people are working and becoming better and becoming holier and saying, okay, yeah, well, look, if these are the halachot and these are the things that a person can le learn and study, and if a person is ready on a specific level to not be in an interaction where they don't need to dance with another person or touch a woman if they're married or if they're, if they're unmarried or it doesn't really matter. But the point is that there's a way to be able to teach someone the, learn, the, the concepts of sniut and kedusha. Wait, we're going to get to the pasha kedoshim in a, little, in a little bit and we'll talk about what it is to be kadosh. It's going to be a beautiful class we'll do on that. But the whole point is to be a holy Jew. There's people that don't understand what it is to be a holy Jew. They don't understand that if I touch a woman, it might be something that might not be good. But why is that? So explain it to the person. Go into the depth of it. Explain what the combination of uh, what, what, potentially what the sin may be or why something may be difficult. But there's a way to teach what a sin is without making a person feel like he's a rasha and that he has no tuma. So we have to do the exact opposite and we have to be able to find the good within every single Jew. And if we weren't able to find the, the good within ourselves, we wouldn't be able to do anything. The only reason why I'm even able to study Torah today and even be able to study Hasidut in general or even, I even consider myself a religious Jew is only because of Braslev Hasidut. It is only because of the Brit of my life. It's only because the Rabbi Nachman gives me the strength and gives me the ability to be able to help me, obviously through the merit of Hashem, to allow me to be able to become a better Jew. Because only through this specific Torah and this ability of being able to study this type of a Torah, I know that I can find within myself something remarkable. I, I didn't find it before, and this is something that speaks to me. Other things speak to other people, but it's very important for people to be able to find something within themselves that allows for them to be able to be the best version of themselves. The beauty of it is, is that this is the same tzaddik that says that comes from the Neshama Moshe Rabbeinu that is building the Beit HaMidash. So when I attach myself to this tzaddik, I'm attaching myself to the concept of Moshe Rabbeinu. Very few people can say that they're doing that. I can say that with pure confidence. And that proves to me and that shows me that there is faith, that there is a connection, that he cares about someone just like me. As opposed to other people that may not pray or may not connect to other people and they feel very, very low. And it takes a lot to be able to pull yourself into a place where you're humble enough and be able to say to yourself that you know nothing, that you can become ishtam, that you don't want to go into the sophistication of the Torah, that you want to just get close to Hashem. And to do that, you need a tzaddik. You need it, it's mandatory. You could try, and I highly encourage it, but you will see that you will eventually need to get to a space where you need a tzaddik because the tzaddik will help you with the rectification. And we can go through lots of lessons of the Kutimaran to be able to explain that and to explain also, I, I don't necessarily just need the Kutimaran, you can do it through, I can explain it to you through the Zohar and through the Aizal as well and through concepts of Gilkulim. But the tzaddik, Yesod Olam comes into the world to make sure that the world gets repaired. And he does it specifically for the purpose of helping unify all the souls of Am Yisrael. He is the concept of Moshe. And Hashem could have taken us out of Egypt by himself, but he specifically sent Moshe. And there was a world that would have existed before this world, but didn't have a tzaddik, and the world was destroyed. But there's a world that exists today, and will survive, and we will do tikkun olam, only because of one thing, because of the tzaddik, and because of the grace of Hashem. So it's very important for people to recognize that. And the will of the tzaddik is the will of Hashem. People also need to understand that's something very complicated for people to understand, but if you're in the Kabbalah and you understand a little bit of deep teachings, it's very, very simple to understand. There's no Kabbalists that disagree with any of the things that I've said. There's only the people that don't study any of the deep Torah. Not that anyone should be saying that they're not meriting to study any deep Torah. But there's no, only the people that don't study deep Torah have arguments with what I have to say. But they're studying Torah of this level. The people that I'm talking about, I'm not saying anything for myself. This isn't my chokhmah. This is the chokhmah of people that are infinitely, infinitely above them. Because their Torah is a Torah that's finite. The Torah of these tzaddikim is not finite. It comes from a level way above that. It comes from a Torah of Atzilut that is perfect in Hashem's creation. 
So people need to understand that and people need to be able to connect with that. But everybody on their own level and do it in simplicity and you will see that through the simplicity, Hashem will help save you in everything that you do because in the end, everything is Hashem. But understanding that even Paro said, what is, we learn the concept of a tzaddik from actually Paro. And what does Paro say when he talks about Yosef? Ish asher ruach elokimbo. There's a man with the spirit of God within him. What is a tzaddik? It's a tzaddik is a person with the spirit of God within them. We want to know the truth. Every single one of us has the spirit of God within us. And we are all tzaddikim. That's why we wake up every single day. The first paragraph we do after we do the netila today, we do elokai neshama shnatata mitoai. The neshama that I just received is pure from Hashem. We don't realize, but we're outside space and time. Every single person, every human being, even goyim, we have a piece of Hashem within us. We have a piece of infinite. Do you understand the concept, how trippy this is, to think that you have a piece of the Oren Sof within your body to a certain degree? You don't see it, you don't recognize it, you don't feel it, but it's there. You might feel it, but you definitely don't see it. Only Tzadikim have the vision to be able to see this type of stuff. Very holy Tzadikim. But you have a piece of Hashem within you. It's remarkable when you think about it. If you live like that and you live, understand that Hashem's with you, people that are like this, real tzaddikim, that's why they don't sin. They don't sin not because they're the reshaim and truma and all this stuff. They don't sin because when you have godliness, he doesn't want to do anything negative. He doesn't want to experience any sort of thing that, that removes that ketusha. So all the actions that they do, their body works for them. Their body works as a vehicle for Hashem. So the tzaddik is a manifestation of Hashem on a certain degree. And he does the will of Hashem. We know it. As it says in Ajashir, we read in Parashat Deshalach. But we believe in Hashem and also in the concept of Moshe. Because we need the tzaddik. The tzaddik is part of it. Just like there's angels and just like people believe, oh, there's an angel of death that's going to come and kill me. Oh, there's a, this, bad, this bad thing. There's this bad thing. There's all these negative things. There's Gehenna. Uh, start reading the Zohar and start reading about the angels that guard Gehenna and all the types of things that happen. Just guess what? There's also angels that do good things for us. There's also the Imaut that pray for us. There's Rachel Imenu that's constantly praying for Ben Yisrael. There's all the imaut up there. There are all the tzaddikim that pass away. The people that we shared for the imaut, they're up there praying for us to have peace and to have the Beit HaMikdash. Right now, they're alive. They're more alive than we are. So we have the same thing. And the same thing, the tzaddikim up there, they don't stop. They continue to push, to push, to push, to push, to push until finally we will have the Mashiach. And we're very close. And Bezat Hashem, it's going to come soon. Amen. 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 I think we'll end it there. <laughs>